Okay, hello friends and uh, welcome to the Chabura. Today we have an exciting public shiur with our Rosh Bet Midrash, the head of our Chabura and someone I'm privileged to call my Rav, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. Today is the first installment of Rabbi Dweck's four-part series on Harambam's introduction to the Perek Chelek, where today we will explore what is Olam Haba. For those who are new, welcome. A little about us, the Chabura is a physical and virtual Bet Midrash with hundreds of members from around the world. We at the Chabura strive to know God by embracing the world through the lens of Torah. We draw inspiration from the classical Sephardi approach to Torah and the many Chachamim within it who saw no contradiction between the Torah and God's world. Other than fascinating public and members shiurim, we have an active online and physical network, a journal, get-togethers, and a publishing house. Uh, please God, very soon we will be coming out with a book on Pesach featuring essays from the Chachamim of the past, the teachers of the present, and scholars of the future. I highly recommend all to join this wonder, wonderful initiative. As usual, all our classes are recorded and will be available on our website after. If you are listening on YouTube or podcast, please like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. All this really helps us. If you have any questions, please raise your hand or post in the chat box. And please, God, there will be also time for questions at the end. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Uh, Ribi, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Sir Ohad for the wonderful introduction, and it is my privilege to be able to be with you and all of the, uh, the people that are sharing tonight and, and coming along tonight. The, uh, the series that we're going to be embarking on tonight is a four-part series, we hope, that is going to be looking at Harambam's introduction to what we call Perek Helek. That is a, a, uh, a term that we use for the 10th chapter of uh, and the reason why we call it Perek Chelek is because it begins Kol Yisrael Yesh Lahem Chelek Le'olam Haba All of Israel has a portion in the world to come or in the coming world So uh, being that it relates to the Chelek the portion in Olam Haba we call it for short Perek Chelek Now this uh, being that this is a chapter in the Mishnah and even more elaborately in the Talmud that talks about the nature of Olam Haba and its relationship to our lives, um, Harambam here, as he often does, writes an introduction. And Harambam's introductions in general are treasuries. They're treasures of, of, of so much principle about our Torah and our Dat and how it is we live our Jewish lives. He uses those opportunities. The source sheet is on, is in the chat, I think. No, is it right, Ohad? Yeah, it's in the chat and I'm posting it again. Okay, that would be great. I'll try to share the screen if, if uh, that helps also when I'm reading. So what Harambam does is he writes introductions, and in the introductions he does in the exquisite way that he does, in the, in the most ordered and clear way that he does, present the principles from which we will better understand the information that he's about to, uh, that he's about to provide comment on. So uh, he, of course, writes his introduction to the Mishnah as a whole, and uh, that is a, a very important presentation of the nature of Torah Shabalpeh. But here he talks about uh, Olam Abba, the idea of reward and punishment in terms of the ultimate ramifications of it, right, which are represented by Olam Abba. 
What we're going to find, though, in our opening class is the confusion that people tend to have about things like Gan Eden, the days of the Mashiach, Olam and and so on. And he is going to first explain the things that he finds people thinking about these things, which I think you'll find are not very different than the way that people think about them today. It's been running for almost 900 years, if not more, the way that the Jewish people relate to these things. And that, I guess, tells us something about uh, how it is that we teach these things and how it is that we, we relate to these things in general, because it really hasn't changed. But what Harambam does over here is he, he, he presents to us first the confusions, the, uh, m- the misconceptions, and the also preconceptions. And then he goes in to, to explain to us and to kind of set it straight and set it right. And he does it with, he starts it with a mashal, with a parable or a, an example, and, and uh, that is essentially what we're going to get through tonight. We're going to look at the, the various approaches that people tend to have with these things, and then we will look at the, the, uh, the, the example that he gives, or the, the, the adage, parable that he gives, to try and orient us to prepare to understand how it is that he wants to be able to explain the nature of Olam Haba and his relationship to us. So we will do, uh, we'll do that tonight, and then we'll have another three classes where we should go through these, these points. Um, so I think I, I, I think I will share the screen. I think I'm going to do that. Uh, I hope I'm going to do that. Okay. I'm just going to look here. Okay, so you should see in this, on the screen the Ra'iti Khan, hopefully. And that's how he opens. And he, he says, uh, this is, again, remember that Harambam wrote his uh, Pirusha Mishnah, he wrote his comments and commentary on the Mishnah in Arabic, as he wrote everything else that he wrote in Arabic, except for the Mishneh Torah. So what we're reading is a translation. And we are reading the translation of Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Kafir, the Chronot of Racha, which, uh, in my opinion, is one of the very best. There aren't very many uh, translations of the Pirusha Mishnah. And uh, thankfully, Rav Kafir did it. And, uh, and so we have it. So he opens up saying, Rav says, look, I, I found it appropriate to speak here on foundational ideas, right? Yesod literally means foundation, right? So these are foundational ideas upon which everything is, is built on. Rabim bimunot, many foundational points upon in in our faith, right? In our in our in our uh, really the lives that we live that are faithful to Torah, which are gedolei ayerich, which are of great value. He says, look, the first thing that you need to know is shebaalei Torah nechleku deotehem b'anyana osher sheasi gadam b'kiuma mitzvot alal. Notice he says baalei Torah. Right, he says, those people who study Torah, right? Baal literally means a master of Torah or people who hold Torah. He says, there are people who study Torah, and in these people, among these people, there are differing opinions regarding the osher, the stability and good that a person will achieve as a result of keeping the mitzvot. 
אשר סיוונו השם בהם, that God commanded us, על ידי משה רבינו בי משה. ובני כמה אשר תבואנו בעוברנו עליהם, not only the reward, but the punishment and נקמה uh, in English is usually translated as revenge, but here it's not revenge and where God is kind of taking revenge on the fact that we didn't keep the misvod, but rather the, the negative consequences and responses that come as a result of living a life in which we've transgressed the commandments of God. There are mahlokot rabot me'od He says the arguments on these issues are so, uh, are so many that they essentially are as many as the, different, as the difference of their thought, right? So as an individual human being thinks differently, his opinion is different. And that means something, right? That, 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 that really tells us something, that it's extremely, um, that a, I guess I would say it this way. Unified understanding about these issues is uh, at best tenuous. It is not stable. We don't have a clear and forward teaching that helps us recognize this in a uniform and substantive foundational way. And Harambam is going to try and address that, as he always does. I mean, he usually tries to address those kinds of things. And he says, And he says, as a result of the fact that even the teachers or the people that are studying Torah, teaching Torah, are so differentiated in their understandings of these issues, the ideas around them have gotten completely messed up. A massive mess up, shibush rav. To the point that you could genuinely say that there isn't one individual that has any clarity around this. So these are very severe things that Harambam is saying here. Right? He's saying basically we are in a complete disaster. It's a catastrophe when it comes to these issues. Nobody knows what they're talking about. And nobody really has a clarity about it. Yeah. So he says, uh, I, we can't find anybody. You won't find either clearly set out and ordered thought to any individual. It is all what we say in sophisticated language, a mishkababu. It's a complete disaster. So It says, now I want to go through and talk about what I have found people think about these things. He says, look, we'll start with the group that talk about Ganaidin. He says, there's a group that thinks that the ultimate end of our lives and our mitzvot, right, what it is that we end up getting as a full ultimate reward for our mitzvot is Ganaidin. It's the Garden of Eden. And what do they think the Garden of Eden is? It's a place that we eat and drink and have no physical exertion, and we can continue doing this without any problem. It's a place where the homes will be built with the finest of stone and uh, the you know silk sheets, and the rivers will be flowing with uh, wine and oil. Sorry, this is a bit. This page is a bit. Uh, you know what you call it, wavy. Nonetheless, you can read. Uh, there's perfumes and so on. A lot of this kind of stuff. You know, it's a lot of physically oriented pleasure and enjoyment. Uh, 
ושהנקמה גינה, and that the opposite of that is גינה. ושהוא מקום לוהט אש, it's a place of fire, right, where there's flaming fire, שבו נשרפות הגופות, in which the bodies of people are burnt, and that there's all kinds of suffering and deprivation that happens there. I mean, the, the kinds of suffering that people can think up, it's just too much to even start talking about, right, to start enumerating. It's, it's all a bunch of stuff. Now, what's interesting, says Harambam, is that the people that hold these ideas in this group have not just pulled this out of thin air. They learned this from many things that the Achamim say in the Talmud. Peace be upon them. Which seems ostensibly that when you read these things that the Achamim say match directly with what these people think. So we're going to have to deal with that. Then there's another group of people. There's another group of people think that the ultimate reward or the ultimate good that's going to come for us is the days of the Mashiach. May he come and be, expo- be exposed to us right soon, says the Ramam. Right? In that time, we'll all be like kings. We'll be big and strong, like you know, Greek gods. And the world will last forever and ever as we know it. And this Messiah, according to their, you know, their imaginations, he'll live forever. In the same way that a God or that God himself lives forever. And, you know, we'll be able to walk in the streets and, and clothing will be hanging off of trees and uh, bread will sprout from the ground. A lot of these kinds of strange impossibilities, says the Rabbah. Nimna'ot are impossibilities. Now, the opposite of that is that in that time, that you just won't make it to the days of the Mashiach. That's the negative. Now they too, they too learn all of this from from many things that the Hachamim say. Not only that, there are psukim in the Torah that seem to suggest this, that uh, the simple readings of them certainly suggest these ideas. Then he says there's a third group. This, this third group is This group thinks that the ultimate good that we're going to experience and reward is going to be the days of the revival of the dead. That the dead will come back to life. And that simply means that a person will come back to life after dying. He'll of course come back with his family. And his friends. His whole social group, you know, he'll come back together. And they'll be able to sit and eat and drink together and not die anymore. And of course, the opposite of that is they won't get up, right? They won't, uh, they won't live again. They'll be, they'll remain dead. 
And this too, גם על זה לומדים במאמרי חכמים ומקצת פסוקים מן המקראות המתאימים לטענה הזו. They too learn this from words of the חכמים and certain פסוקים that seem to suggest this. So over and over again, הרמב״ם is saying, they think these things, but these things are not pulled out of thin air. These things come from the words of the חכמים and פסוקים. There is a fourth group, and this group is Zakat Ravid, Hoshevet Shaosher Shinasig Bikiyum HaMisvotu Ta'anug HaGuf VeHeseGeh HaOlam BaOlam HaZeh. Some people just think that, look, you know, I don't know about Gan Eden and Mashiach and all that. We just think that really what's going to end up happening is you're just going to have a great life, period, on earth. And you'll just have tremendous physical enjoyment. You'll get everything that the world has to offer. You know, great kids, great assets, great uh, property, great cars, great homes, and all that stuff. Strength and health, long life, security, you know, the best possible situation in, in life. And we'll also have sovereignty. And we will have full control over our own destiny and our own lives. No war, no, none of that problem. And of course, the opposite of this, the nekama, means our going against the mitzvot. They say basically that it will be like the times that we're in now. Right, the time of Galut and where we suffer and we're 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 oppressed and uh, you know uh, all kinds of suffering and hardship and so on. It'll never go away. They learn this too, according to their understanding. I mean, all this is of course according to their understanding. I mean, how does the Torah speak? The Torah speaks in terms of physical plenty and security, quite explicitly. And the curses of the Torah are the misery of the life, the lives that we live on this earth. I mean, the whole Bible is filled with this stuff. Then, of course, there's a fifth group. In this group, Hemarov, they're the majority. The final group is the majority. And they just mix all of those last four groups into one big mishkabab. So they just pick and choose from all of them, kind of like make a salad of all of this stuff. They say something to the effect of the Mashiach is going to come and the dead are going to live and we're all going to walk into Gan Eden and we're all going to eat and drink uh, forever and ever in happiness. Right? Some version of that. So, he says, he says, however, the element that is uh, beyond what it is that they're talking about, kilomar ha'olam haba, what I mean by that is olam haba, you will find that very few people, if any, contemplate what that is. What is this olam haba business? Or anybody who's really thought about it. Or anybody who's really contemplated or pondered this foundational idea. Nor has anyone really asked about or thought about what these terms mean. Or if it's 
I mean, is Olam Abba the goal or any of these other previous things the goal? We have Dil Ben Atachlitu Ben Atachlit, and nobody's really worked on trying to differentiate what's the ends and what's the means. And what is the ultimate end and the means that get us there? You will find that nobody really takes any of it and through serious, rigorous thought and examination. They just run with it. You know what people spend their time thinking about with regards to these things, says the Rambam? They ask, of course, the really important questions, and I mean that uh, sarcastically. I mean, when people do get up from the dead, will they get up uh, with their clothes on or naked? And, and, if, and, if they, and if they get up, are they going to get up with the same clothes that they were buried with? Or are they going to be like some other kind of stuff waiting for them? Or, and, and are they going to be like intact miraculously? Or are they going to all be all withered? Or will it cover its whole body, their whole body? Or like, how's that going to work? And they also, of course, ask about the days of Mashiach. I mean, will the, the, will the rich and poor be equal? Will there be any rich and poor anymore? I mean, will there be strong and weak people anymore in that time? And he goes, I got to tell you, I get so many of these questions frequently. Right? Leitim means frequently. Now, he's then talking back to us. And he says, Now you who are delving in, Because before I start unpacking what Olam Abba is and how to understand these things, I need to give you a, a, an example. I need to give you an, an, an analogy. I'm going to give you this analogy. And then, then pay close attention to what I'm going to tell you after I present to you this analogy. Now, here's the analogy. Let's suppose... Let's say a young boy was brought to a teacher so that he could study Torah. I mean, you know, we can recognize, of course, for a young, young boy to begin studying Torah is going to be an excellent thing for this boy's life because it will present him wisdom, will give him frameworks for living for developing himself and his connection with God, which what more can a person ask in terms of life than these things? I mean, we have to know how to be, how to be in the best way, and how ultimately to achieve ourselves and to connect to God. I mean, that's it, really. And the Torah is a wonderful way of doing that if a person can understand Torah and study properly. This is a huge benefit to this child. Because of what will come to him from his wholeness, his, his, his self-achievement. Now, what we know is because he's very young, and he's not terribly uh, uh, educated yet, there's no way that this little boy can understand the value of what it means to sit and learn. You know, my grandfather, he won't... He won't uh, mind that I say this, may he live and be well. 
he tells me that when he was a boy, he had to learn in the Kitab in Brooklyn, right? He had to learn in the Kitab until he was 13 years old. That was what they did. They used to make the boys learn in the Kitab until they were 13 years old. And then when he was 13 years old, he had an opportunity. They were offering the 13-year-old boys, the bar mitzvah boys, right? They were offering the bar mitzvah boys a chance to learn privately in a small group with Hacham Atlub, Abadi. And my grandfather refused to sit with him at 13. Why would he want to sit with the rabbi at 13 years old when he can go and be free finally? And he said, I remember my father physically pulling me pulling me physically in the street to go and sit with Hacham Matlub, and I refused to do it. And he said to me years, years later, he goes, can you imagine if I got the chance, if I had sat and learned with Hacham Matlub? Can you imagine what it is that I gave up at that age? So, of course, a little boy doesn't know these things. He has no idea what value it means to sit and learn personally with Hacham Matlub, and nobody gets that. So here you have no idea. Right, this little boy has no idea. He can't even begin to contemplate what a whole achievement of life means. I was talking to a young man this week who's struggling with uh, his commitment to mitzvot and, uh, and, and Torah. And an extremely intelligent young man uh, at that. But there's one thing that intelligence no matter what it is or what level it is, it doesn't give until the years have been lived. And that is that if you are 15, 16, 17 years old, and you have the majority of your life, statistically speaking, I mean, nobody has any guarantees, but statistically speaking, you have the majority of your life yet to live, which means the, the minority of your life is behind you. The, the shorter part of your life is behind you. You have no perspective. You can't even begin to contemplate what it means to fulfill one's purpose in life. It's far too out of reach to even imagine what that means. You have so long to live. That's why everybody has midlife crises, because when they get to midlife, they realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm at the point where I'm about to be living the end of my life. I've lived in a moment, I will have lived most of my life. And that certainly shifts things, which you cannot see until you get to the top of the mountain. And you realize that the only way to go from the top of the mountain is down. And you just can't replace that with book, book, book learning. There's no way to do that. So, so well, that's what Ambam is saying. You know, you've got a boy who cannot really understand what this means. You know what we have to do in order to be able to get the kid to sit down and learn. What we have to do is bribe the child. That's what we have to do. Right? You can say it in nicer terms. You know, you can say you can incentivize the child. But at the end of the day, what we need to do is give the child something that the child does value and want as payment for doing the thing that we know is really the better thing for him to do. Now, it's remarkable the degree that Harambam goes through this, but he actually takes the time. He could have said this in principle. He said, you know, you just got to give them what they want so that they do this thing. But look, he goes stage by stage. And it's very, very important that he actually does go stage by stage because what he's saying is that, in a certain sense, is that this never really leaves us. 
Because it's not just about immaturity. So he says, we'll look at it, but he says, I mean, what it requires is for the teacher who is more developed than the child, hopefully, hopefully, right? It requires the teacher who's more developed to encourage the child with something that the child is interested in, the child likes. And the teacher has to say, sit and learn. And if you do learn, I'll give you some figs or candy or sweets or whatever it is. Now, of course, the, if the child wants those things enough, he'll do what it is that the teacher is asking him to do, but not because of the thing itself but rather because of the reward that he's going to get. Because he can't relate to the value of the thing that he's doing in terms of the learning. Right? So, And therefore, the child looks at the learning as an exertion and a, and a, and a, uh, a chore. That he's, he's basically working through so that he'll be able to get what he wants, the nuts and the, the candies and the dried fruits and whatnot. Now, of course, this continues, says Haramba. Gets a little older, right? Now he's not, he's not six, seven, eight, nine years old anymore. Now he's a teenager, maybe late teens even, early 20s. You're going to tell him you're going to give him a Laffy Taffy if he sits down to learn Torah. It's not going to cut it. So now what do you have to give him? Well, you have to give him some, you know, shopping opportunities, right? You need to get him some new shoes, maybe a new suit, give him, you know, a shopping spree at a uh, you know, clothing store, whatever. Get him all really nice and decked out. Get him some really cool, cool sneakers, whatever, whatever. You know, whatever it is the kid likes. Yeah, you get him these things and you tell him, learn. And I'll get you these things. Okay, so he learns for those things. You find whatever it is that he finds to be the most important thing. So, okay, good. You see what you need to incentivize him with. And how do you incentivize? You incentivize things that people find is valuable. And you get them to do the things that they think is less value or less value. Of course, while this child is sitting and studying, he's not studying for the study, right? For the sake of the study itself or for what it does that the study, the study itself does, the value of the study itself. No, he does it for an ulterior motive. So then if he grows out of the clothing thing, right? Now he's, oh, he's much more sophisticated now, right? He's much more sophisticated. He doesn't like the physical stuff in the same way anymore. So you tell him, listen, you learn something, I will actually just give you money. I'll pay you. Right? Okay, so he gets paid for it. But even then he's doing it only because he's getting paid for it, not because of the thing itself. Because the payment and the money is more important to him than the actual information and the knowledge. 
וכאשר יהיה בעל הקייר יותר, זה לא מבין, אתה חושב, אוקיי, אנחנו מבינים, אם אתה נותן כסף, הכסף נותן לך את כל מה שאתה רוצה. לא, פנומנל, תראה איך הרמב״ם הולך עם זה. לי זה פשוט הדבר הכי מעניין, בגלל שהרמב״ם הוא כל כך מעניין בזה. הוא אומר, אז עכשיו האנשים מגיעים לכך שאפילו הכסף is not the most important thing. Now he's an academic. Right? Now he's a scholar. And so he values the stuff itself. However, we'll use what's more important to him. And what, of course, is more important when you have essentially relinquished the value of material items? Well, it's honor. Of course. It's personal position and honor. And what have you if you've given all of that other stuff up? It's recognition. So you know what you do, says the Ramam. You say, you learn because you'll get smicha if you learn. Maybe you'll be a Dayan if you learn. And you know what happens to Dayanim. They respect you. They stand up when you walk in the room. They call you Dayan, you know. It's very special. People will respect you. They'll stand for you. And they'll do what you tell them. People will talk about you. While you're alive and after you die. Like, uh, let's say, Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi so-and-so. Be like that. Of course, then he will learn for that. But that, of course, is not the goal of the learning. Quite the contrary. Now, look at the next three words. The next three words are very important. Harambam says, This is all disgusting. All of it. Because we're disgusting. <laughs> He doesn't say that, but essentially that's the idea. We're a mess. In other words, when you recognize, this is something also that Harambam does often in his writings. He's extremely sensitive to human development and very realistic to the nature of the underpinnings of the human condition and psyche and how it is that they work. And so he says, look, you think that you're going to idealize study to a six-year-old or for that matter, to a 35-year-old or 40-year-old who hasn't gone through the breaking aspects of midlife crisis <laughs> to, to be able to sit and learn when he could be doing other things? No, you need incentives because they think other things are more important. They have not yet understood how important it is to just understand themselves and to just understand life and to connect to God. So you need to use ulterior motives in order to be able to get them to have it. But they need to have it. Because it's important for them. And one day they will thank you over the fact that now they actually have the wisdom and they will recognize how important it was that they have it. But you've got to do it this way, says the Rambam. Because if you think that you are explaining to him how important this stuff is, when they have not the cognitive ability nor the experiential development to be able to genuinely get it beyond just words, you've done nothing. They haven't done it. 
So you do it in whatever way it is that you can. Now, what's very important over here, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, is that what's happening in the interim, right? And I cannot stress this enough. I cannot stress this enough. So pay attention. What's happening over here is that Harambam is not just saying, get them to do the act. What he's saying is, is that as a result of learning the Torah itself, the Torah affects the mind of the person. Obviously, we hope that the Torah is being taught appropriately, that it's a good teacher. One can get a bad teacher and learn Torah badly, and it doesn't help. But if a person gets a good teacher and Torah is taught properly and appropriately, little by little, what a person learns affects the person. And the Torah helps them grow into greater understanding and cognition, along with their own development. So it accompanies them in their own development. That's why it's it escorts you, right? It's something that guides you through your life, that walks you along in your life. So he says like this, it's disgusting, but we need to do it, says the Rabbi. Why? Because human beings have very remedial and mediocre ways of relating to high-level uh, thought and abstracted ideas. Excuse me. Thank you. Okay. Right? He can't really get it. He's like, why am I even learning this? That is what the Hachamim call Lolishma. When they say that a person should learn Lolishma or something was learned Lolishma, not for its own sake, for its own purpose, this is what they're referring to. For ulterior motives. You're studying for some other purpose. Not the intrinsic purpose or the intrinsic value that is in the endeavor itself. One thing that people tend to do, Lishma, is play. You don't have to pay someone to play, usually, right? People just play for its own sake. It's intrinsically valuable. And that's all Lishma is. People get all, you know, messed around. What does Lishma mean? What is Lishma? It's very simple. You do something for its own intrinsic worth. Not for some other purpose that is not directly and not intrinsic to the, the endeavor itself. That's what Lishma means. So this is what the Achabim calls the Lishma. There's an ulterior motive involved. That's Lishma. Now, if we are to take that concept and apply it to the mitzvot, then you realize what does it mean to do mitzvot not lishma. To do mitzvot not lishma is essentially you do mitzvot and lomedu mishtadel, and you learn and you you strive in them lo not because of its own sake, for some other reason. should be the hachamim warned us from doing this. And they said, Lo Be very careful not to use Torah for some other reason, for some other purpose. Don't use them as a crown so that you can get ahead. 
Don't use them as a shovel so that you can dig up things for yourself and get things to move and function for yourself. When they say those things, they're hinting to what I just explained. That you should not make the purpose of your study not so that people should honor you, not so that you should get any money for it. You shouldn't use the Torah of God as a means of your own uh, um, sustenance and livelihood. The goal of the learning should be knowing it. And of course, when it comes to truth, knowing what is true, the only reason to know what's true is because it's true. And there's an intrinsic value in knowing what's true. Since the mitzvot are true, because they come from the true God, the goal of the mitzvot is just to do them. As they're meant to be done. And it's and it's it's prohibited for a whole and developed person to say, if I did these good things and I kept away from these bad things that God told me I should do, how much is my reward? And in what fashion will my reward come? It's not the right way to talk. Interesting here too, he says what he says in the Mishneh Torah. He says it's prohibited to say it. Asur la'adam Hashem sheyomar. Never say that. Even if you struggle with the thought, don't say it. You say it, you create the reality for yourself. It's prohibited to speak that way. The fish is sheyomar anar. It would be the exact same thing as the young boy saying, if I learn, what are you going to give me? And then they tell him, we'll give you this. Because when we see that his mind is not fully developed and he's asking a purpose for the purpose, right? In other words, he's asking an end for the end. Right? This is the end. No, I want a purpose for this. Why am I doing this? Well, this is the re- You're doing this because it's this. Uh, I want to know why I'm doing it. Well, when he does that, then you answer a, a person who's missing intelligence in terms of their cognitive abilities. In other words, you speak to the person on their level. And even this, the Hachamim warned us about. They told us about. Person should be very, very careful not to place some ulterior motive on the way that he follows mitzvot. This is what the great Hasid, perceiver of truth, Antignos Ish Socho said. You should never be like the servants who serve the master conditionally in order to be able to gain a prize for it, which is what pras is. And this is not the normal language of the Mishnah that we have, but this was Haram Bam's girsa. 
Rather, you should be like the servants who serve the master on the condition not to receive a reward. You give me a reward, you cheapen it. I don't want anything for it. I want to do it and let the deed be the deed. And we have perceptions of that. You know, you give something to somebody that you love or you do something for somebody that you love and say, here, let me pay you for it. I don't want to pay. Don't pay me. I don't want your payment. I don't want your money. I want to be able to do for you what I did for you. That's all. By paying me, it's like you're giving it back. They wanted through saying this for a person who perceives truth to do truth because it's true. Not for any other reason. And they called a person who was able to do this, right? To simply serve and do what is true because it is true. A person who serves out of love. And of course it's a person who serves out of love because God's involved over here. All of this is only because God asked us, right? It's only because God is saying, do this. This is, this is my covenant with you. So in the same way that with a person that you love, you do something for them because you love them, because this is just them and you want to do something for them. If they try to pay you, you please, please don't pay me. And that's why I call it. And what is the payment of the, of the, of the behavior? This is important, right? Because people might not get this. You do something for someone you love, they pay you, it ruins it. Does that mean that there's no sechar? There's a very big difference between pras and sechar. Pras is a prize. Here, let me give you a prize for that. Sechar is, is the, the reward that comes from the endeavor. And the reward that comes from the endeavor is that there's greater love. It enhances the loving relationship. That's why there's great uh, questions today in modern psychology about, about love language. In other words, it's been very, very much recognized that different people have different love languages. In other words, they interpret love differently than others. So there are basic ones, right? Some people feel love when they are physically touched. Some people feel love when they are spoken to and told that they are loved. Some people feel love when there is acts of service done for them. I brought you a coffee. I picked you up a newspaper. And some people don't feel that at all. I brought you a newspaper. Thanks a lot. You told me you love me today. What do you mean I didn't tell you that? I brought you a newspaper. I got you a coffee. I brought you some chocolate. Okay, for you that works. For me that doesn't work. Love languages. These are ways that people perceive love. And what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is essentially saying is that the mitzvot are my love languages. Again, I'm borrowing here because it's God. You get what I mean. And so if you realize that you do it simply because that's what that's the act of love. And therefore the Hachamim said, Sturdy and strong is a person who fears God and who desires his mitzvot exceedingly. Amar Bilazar, Bilazar says, it doesn't say in the Pasuk, it says that you desire his mitzvot. Not that you desire the reward of his mitzvot. 
No, you desire the act itself because you know the act itself in and of itself is the love and the reverence and the recognition. I don't want you to give me something for it. I want to do it. Become a How great is this proof? Become a biruran. How clear is it? This is a clear proof to what we had we just established before that this is the nature of how one should learn and do its even greater than that it's what they said in the sifresh maybe a person says you know i'm going to relearn torah so that i could become wealthier i don't know if anybody ever said that but nonetheless i'm going to learn to call me rabbi so that i can get all i'm abide well, well, remember that the Pasuk says that you are to love God. Make sure that anything that you do in the context of your relationship with God, which of course includes Torah and Mitzvot, you should only do out of love. Not out of what it is you're going to get out of it, personally. For personal motives. And could you imagine what it would be like if a person that you loved found out that the acts of love that you were doing were being paid by someone? Could you imagine that that heinous atrocity? And it's precisely that reason that Akadosh Baruch Hu, you know, through the Navi, Yirmiyahu Navi, opens Echa, saying, Echa ita lezona, emana. How is it that this, this faithful city became a harlot doing acts of love for payment? I mean, is that not what a harlot is? And so that's the problem here. We make very clear over here that this is the entire point of the mitzvot. It is the foundation of the entire faithful endeavor of our hachamim. I mean, you can't miss this unless you're an idiot, right? I'm not saying he's saying that, right? Only an idiot get, misses this. Right? Only an, an ignoramus or, or an, an unintelligent individual misses this if they study Torah and learn properly. I mean, you know, unfortunately, there are people whose uh, straight and clear thought is messed up. And they've already, you know, uh, have faulty wiring in terms of how it is that they think and relate to reality. And they've got all kinds of strange ideas that don't allow for them to be able to think in straight and clear terms. Now, the, the approach that we're talking about over here, this is the way that Abraham Avinu lived. He did everything out of love. He just loved God. And so he did it. He did it as acts of love. And the truth is that all of us are meant to strive to that level. Now, what Rambam is saying, he's saying, look, it's understandable if you're not there yet. Because we're, we're meat brains and love is a very, very hard thing for us to do. It really is. I mean, for human beings, love in general is a very hard thing for us to do. Because we are so selfish and self-oriented. That's why Dawkins called his book about the genes. Right? In other words, he wrote a book that shows how... The gene is the basic motivator and drive to evolutionary development. 
not the species, not the broad, not the macro level. It's all in the genes. It's all genes needing to reproduce. So he called the book the selfish gene. And it's very important to understand. You understand so much when you read that book about one's own, one's own self and one's own basic human nature. It's an essential book to read. Very, very important. I taught the entire Mesilat Yesharim based on that book. And that's why I call it. It's a selfish gene. We're selfish, fundamentally. And even though we do altruistic things, right? They are selfishly altruistic. It behooves us to be nice to people sometimes. But we rarely do very nice things to people that does not behoove us. That's growth. That's development. That's wholeness. That's where a person is no longer living in the drives of biology and has moved into the space of I am being whole and the ability to share oneself without fear of losing anything or, or danger of, of falling apart and vulnerabilities and so on. It's a very, it's not an easy level to get to. One needs to live many years in order to be able to get there. And so it's we have an obligation to strive towards that. And because this is a very difficult thing to do, I mean, we're being realistic here. We all have ulterior motives. Not every person ends up getting there. Because you really, I mean, this is very important to understand. It's not like just all of a sudden one day you arrive. This takes consistent, relentless practice of self-refinement. Even if he does get there, it's going to be iffy. It's not going to be stable. You won't necessarily uh, fully get it. That it's real and true and it's always this way. Why? I mean, because the basic fundamental nature of our humanity, and this is hundreds of thousands of years old running in us, is that we do things in order to be able to get, get some gain out of it or to shield ourselves from some kind of damage. And if not, we anticipate the things that we're doing. We're not getting anything forward or protecting ourselves from something forward. We think that it's for, for it's there's no reason to do it. How are we supposed to tell a Torah person, a guy who studies Torah, do something, but not because you're afraid of God punishing you, and not because you're going to get any reward from it? No, no, none of that. That's very difficult, says the Rambam. I mean, let's be honest. Because so many people, they just don't get truth in its whole form, in its wholeness, right? A true reality of self and world and self and world and all of that. And getting to Avraham Avinuzville is not easy. He was relentless. And therefore, the Achamim allowed for the vast majority, right? The, 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 uh, the, the uh, what do you call it? The masses, Yeah. That they could keep their thinking and do the good things because they're going to get reward for it and do the bad thing, keep from doing the bad things because they're afraid of being punished. But, and here's the kicker, 
And Harabam says this later in the Mishneh Torah in much more explicit terms. But you keep edging them, nudging them, moving them gradually up on refinement and whole thought. Achievements of full self, which is essentially what it brings one to. We encourage them. We strengthen their thinking. Sorry, why does Harambam expand upon this? We strengthen their, their thinking in these ideas. Until they grasp it, till they get there and they know the truth. And they get to know what is the whole and full way of living. In the same way we do that little boy that needed to go and learn with the teacher. Just in the mashal that we gave. Not only that, they were even a bit tough with Antignoji Soho because he exposed this to the to the to the uh, to the masses. You have to be very careful what you say to the to the broad masses of people. They're not gonna get it. And if they don't get it, they're going to mess around. They're going to have trouble with it. I'll explain that later in Pirkei Avot, says Harambam. Uh, because it's not like it's completely off if people do mitzvot because they think they're getting reward. I mean, it is valuable to do those behaviors. Why, says the Rambam? Because, you know... Because it helps them connect to the Torah. You know, it's kind of like this, this kind of repository, scaffolding mitzvot, to kind of help you keep in the, in the environment of Torah. And it'll get them to the truth. So if it's not doing it for its ultimate sake, it at least is a helpful practice. That is a positive practice in their life. As the Hakamim indeed said, a person should always engage in Torah, even if he's not doing it for its own purpose, even if he's doing it for an ulterior motive. Why? Because when you do things, when you do something, when you, it's not things, when you do Torah for an ulterior motive, you end up coming to do it for its own purpose. Now, this is the last thing I'm going to say, which is very important. People think that this mitoch thing applies to everything, and it does not. It never, ever says in all of Hazal, at least as far as I've seen, that a person should do mitzvot alone, in other words, just the practice, because doing it for the wrong reason will end up getting them to do it the right reason. It doesn't say that anywhere. What it says, either it says do Torah, which of course is the study, because you do it for the wrong reason, you get to the right reason, because the Torah itself will teach you. Or it says Torah and mitzvot, but never mitzvot by themselves. Cracked void of, of context and meaning never ever changes from what it is. It needs context. And the context, the Torah itself, is ultimately what it is that develops. And that's why Harambam says over here, the person should always engage in Torah. 
Now, that's where we end tonight. The next thing that Harambam is going to go into is how people relate to the words of the Hachamim. Why is he doing that? Because remember that when he was giving Gan Eden and Tariyat Metim and Mashiach, and so he said, and all of they, they all understand these things because of what they read in the Hachamim. So of course, his next story of business is, well, they were reading the Hachamim wrong. It's not that it doesn't say these things in the Hachamim. They're just reading them wrong. And we're going to have to address that. And that's what we will do next time. Okay. Who's in charge? Thank you very much, Hassan. Um, a lot of food for thought. A lot of reviewing to do. Uh, right. Who has questions? If we have, how come you have a couple of minutes for questions? Yeah, yeah, five minutes. Five minutes. Thank you very much. Um, please feel free to unmute and ask. Ellie, I think you had a question. Ellie Hodari. Yes, <clears throat> I was just wondering this. Uh, I didn't quite catch. She said the Ramam expands upon this somewhere else. Yeah, he writes the whole thing in Hilchot Shuba. Mainly in the 10th Perik. Any other questions? Please feel free to mute. No we said about incentives. Daniel? We said about yeah. incentives. One, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Yossi. Okay. We said about incentives. Yeah. Um, when, do, when does it stop? I mean, you're just going to continue for higher and higher incentives. When does it stop? How do when a person we... realizes that it's absurd to, well, to look for the incentives. Until a person realizes that, then as long as they find the incentives more valuable than learning, then they haven't arrived. Once they realize they're not interested in the incentives, they're interested in getting to know what's, what's going on in the world and how they're supposed to develop themselves in their context of Torah and breach with God, then you know they've gotten there. They don't need any other incentives except for the intrinsic value in the endeavor itself. That's the whole point. If one does not find intrinsic value in the endeavor itself, then they still need incentives. That's it. It's, it's as easy as that. Perfectly. Daniel? So, um, hi, Rabbi. Very interesting tonight. Um, practical question. So, um, you said that it, there's an issue with doing mitzvot and not learning. What do you mean right. an issue? Which issue? Well, it's not ideal. You mean in right? terms of the lishma, the lishma bit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, now, some people are allergic to learning. They like, you know, doing misfot, but they don't want to come to, uh, to shiurim and things like they're that. They're not allergic to learning. They may be allergic to certain teachers or modes of teaching, but they're not allergic right. to learning. There's no such thing. Yeah. No, I'm serious. I'm not kidding about that. It's like when people say that children don't like to learn. That's absolutely false. It's what children do. They learn. They learn their own way. And if you don't teach them, they'll figure out how they get the information that they need to get. I mean, just give a kid some YouTube and they'll be all over. I mean, it's not just entertainment. They will look up what they need to find. And they will spend hours on this. Children, it's what children do. They learn. And we as human beings learn until we think we've got enough of a working definition of the world and then we get lazy and we don't learn anymore until we need to learn something and figure it out. People are not allergic to learning. They're allergic to modes of teaching. And that is extremely important to understand and recognize. That's why it says, You have to teach a child according to that child's capacity to learn. You have to speak, 
That's why Harambam says in the laws of telling the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim on Pesach and Halchot Hametzu Matzah, Kefi da'ato shel ben aviv min You teach the child in terms of the cognitive abilities of the child. You prepare according to your cognitive abilities. You teach according to theirs. That's very important. So one has to see what it is, how it is that a person is able to learn. But what Harambam is saying very clearly is that if you don't get them to recognize the value of what you're teaching, and they only want to learn what they're learning, then you need to find some kind of incentives that work. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else with questions? Nope. I think that's it. Good. Thank you Brilliant. everyone for joining. I hope to see you next week. Thank you everybody. Um, we will see you. The next class will be on Monday. Continuation of her podcast with Rabbi Yonatan Halevi, and back with Rabbi Direct next Wednesday. In the meantime, please do get a sneak peek since we stayed until the end. www.thehabura.com forward slash book. You will get to see the front cover and the description of the new book that we are publishing on PESA um, in the coming week. So uh, have a look. Thehabara.com forward slash book. Pre-order link will be up soon. Thank you wherever you are. Good night. Goodbye. Take care. See you on Sunday. On Monday. (laughs) Bye-bye.